You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live, where we take a a closer look at rising changemakers, young people who have caught our eye from the Hill to the entertainment industry and everywhere in between. I'm Helena Andrews-Dyer, a pop culture reporter here at The Washington Post. My guest today is a James Beard award-winning chef and Emmy-nominated TV host of the Taste Made series, Counterspace. Sophia Rowe joins me now to talk about food insecurity around the world. Sophia, welcome to Post Live. Ah, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thank you for being here. Uh, Let's dig right in, as a chef would say. Uh, So you are a chef. (laughs) I am. You're a chef um, and host of Counterspace, which is currently in its second season on Taste Made, but you have described it as definitely not a cooking show. So tell us what it is and where the idea for Counterspace came from. Okay, there is cooking in the show, just so we're clear. <laughs> but it's so much more than a cooking show, right? Like there's so much storytelling. There's so much anecdotal evidence of the stuff we hear about all the time, whether it be food insecurity, food justice, um, agriculture, um, climate change, right? It's really a it's really a show about stories. Um, in terms of when it came about, you know, it was actually like already in production, and then 2020 came. We know the rest, right? We know the story from there. And I think we were trying to figure out like, okay, what can we do with this show? Right. Cause I, for the first season, I couldn't even really interview people like in front of them. I had to do everything over zoom. So we knew the importance of this show before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic actually kind of like blew the lid on all of that. We were like, wow, like it is so important that we have a very food news based show, you know, that's very much what it is. And to that vein, one of the taglines of Counterspace is food is news, uh, which I find so fascinating working in the news. Uh, What food related news topics are you diving into and focusing on this season? The biggest thing that I want to focus on is where our food comes from. You know, more than 60 percent of the food that we consume here in the United States comes from somewhere else. And I think when we one story I kind of like hone in on is like, or two, chocolate coffee, right? Most people in the United States are drinking coffee. Most people in the United States are eating chocolate. Um, But the only places in the United States that grow coffee or chocolate are a little bit in Hawaii and maybe a little bit in South Florida, right? So most of those things are coming from somewhere else. And chocolate, uh, just off the top of my head, it's like most people think chocolate, they think Switzerland, or they might think Zurich or Munich. But in fact, the best chocolate in the world actually comes from Africa or comes from South America, you know? So that's a big topic for me. That's what I'm really trying to hone in on. Where is our food actually coming from? Who are the people actually growing this food, right? Where do they come from? Do they like growing this food, right? We, we don't really live in an agrarian society anymore here in the United States. Not all of us, right? Um, less than 1% of the population in the United States uh, farms, right? But 100% of us eat. So I really want to focus on the actual human beings that are responsible for what's on our plate. Absolutely. The human stories, the people stories behind the food that we eat, the things that we drink, um, the stories that we never hear about. That's fascinating. Um, So we know Counterspace is not your traditional recipe show, but we do have a clip of you in the kitchen cooking up something special. Let's take a look. We're going to take it up to level four. Check it out. Yo, baby, look at her. Gorgeous. Wow, baby. 
Alrighty. Look at that. Ain't she something? So you're gonna see me fold it over, and then I'm gonna just do it again. Look at that. Now, we're gonna cut our maltaliati. So these are one inch long strips. If it doesn't work out and or you mess up, great. It's just chocolate pasta. And then I'm gonna go on and cut little triangles. Pop these cuties onto our floured baking sheet. You're gonna have to let this dry about two to three hours. You're going to love it, okay? Stand by. So speaking of chocolate, right? Chocolate and pasta, two words that the, your average home chef wouldn't necessarily put together. Uh, what inspired this recipe? Yeah, we really just wanted to take chocolate in a, in a, we wanted to blow your mind a little bit. We just wanted to take it in a completely different direction. I think a lot of times when we think chocolate, we think sweet. Uh, or if we do think savory, we think maybe like a mole sauce or like something sauce related. And I just wanted people to know that, you know, there's a lot of different flavor and there's a lot of different um, levels to cacao and, and, and what you could do with it. So we really just kind of wanted to do something really different. You know, we, we did that uh, also with the seaweed episode, you know, seaweed, you think sushi for us, we were like, let's make semifredo, let's make ice cream. You know, like we really wanted to get people to look at the foods that they're eating or consuming just a little bit differently, you know, plus my style as a cook, like as a chef is very kind of like fantasy, you know, like that's very much me. Like there's no reason why you can't make whatever you want in the kitchen. You know, it's, it's also my medium for art. So um, I really hope that people make chocolate pasta because it's delicious. <laughs> I, speaking of fantasy, I, I believe chocolate pasta is probably a lot of people's fantasy, right? <laughs> and so now that we know it can be a reality, that is incredible. Um, yeah. That was amazing. That was mind blowing. You said blow your minds. That was mind blowing to me and so surprising. What has been the most surprising thing you've learned um, since creating, producing, hosting this show? The, oh my gosh, let's see. Okay. One of the wild things that I learn every single day are how many people care about the same things I care about, right? Like it's a lot of times you really think you're like on like a ship just out in the middle of the ocean by yourself. You really are like, why is, why is no one caring about this as much as I do? But Every time I interview someone or every time I get on the phone with someone or do a pre-interview, whatever, it blows my mind. Like there are so, yes, there are a lot of problems, but there are so many solutions, right? Mm. And I think the whole like doom, the doom scroll thing or like us just sitting around talking about how bad things are, there are a lot of people out there sitting around talking about solutions. And that really surprises me every single day. Like, wow, there are so many people out there that are looking at these problems, right? And finding answers to them, whether like really granular or like on a very large scale, they are tackling these things. Like I do believe that climate change, I do believe racial justice, I do believe reform with agriculture. I do believe these things are possible, you know? And it seems as if food and the kitchen table, right? It's that place where all of these things can come together and people can connect in a way that is surprising, would you say? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. You know, you know, what's so insane is I feel like food is actually such a really great starter with any conversation, but especially with a difficult conversation. If you really need to sit down and have a conversation, whether it be, um, I've, I've heard of it many times, but maybe you have a, a, a racist re uh, relative, right? Or maybe you have a relative who um, has some different beliefs than you and you really want to sit down and talk to them. Doing that over a meal, 
amazing. I also feel like uh, there are, if, if you're dealing with someone who maybe doesn't believe racism still exists, sitting down to talk with them over food. I had this great conversation with Michael Tweedy. He's so amazing storyteller, sort of about the origins of our food and why we eat what we eat, where stereotypes come from. A really great example that I bring up all the time is the stereotype of like black people and fried chicken, right? Uh, that actually comes from somewhere, you know? When enslaved folks were first brought here more than 400 years ago, the only animal they were allowed to own was the guinea hen, right? So a lot of these food origin stories tell a deeper, darker, more sad, more intense story. And I know we want our food origin stories to be really happy because they make us feel good. It's very important for us to understand that these origin stories tell a lot, tell a lot deeper of a story than just about what we're eating, but also where we came from, right? Why we're here, et cetera. So it's never just about the food, right? It's always something more, something deeper. Um, yeah. Switching gears a bit, not really. You were the first <laughs> black woman nominated for a daytime Emmy in the culinary category. Um, the first, right? That, that's a topic that can feel heavy or perhaps not. Tell me what you think about being the first. No, it's very heavy for me. Uh, it, in, in fact, I, 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 I still struggle with that. Um, that category has been in existence since before 2012. I'm astounded in a bad way that we, <laughs> when I just think about, when I think about black people, when I think about black women in particular, you know, we exist on every single inhabitable continent, you know? And, um, so to think that I am the first in this category, um, when I think about black women and how, um, I mean, Edna Lewis is my hero, you know, like, I don't think I'd be a cook if not for her. Incredible black chef for anyone who doesn't know. Um, taught Alice Waters had a cook, you know, and Alice Waters would, would now would admit that. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to be the only black person nominated for anything ever again. I'll say that, you know, like I'm happy and I'm proud to have that accolade, but I also just felt alone. Um, and not just because of, of, of being black, but also my age, um, you know, to almost be the youngest as well. It just, you know, there's so much incredible black talent out there, particularly culinary talent. So I'm hoping that that shifts and changes in every category, not just the culinary category moving forward. Absolutely. Kicking the door open, wide open for the folks wide. coming behind you. I love that concept. Um, going a bit deeper about food and food insecurity. You were in the foster care system as a child um, and spent time in shelters. How did your perspective impact, how did that experience impact your perspective on hunger and how hunger is discussed in the world? I mean, it's just the language that we use. I could start there. You know, we say terms, right? Like food access, food insecurity, food deserts, food swamps. We got to just call it hunger because that's what it is. There are people going to bed hungry, right? In one way or another, that's what it is. So I think we, in the United States especially, we kind of treat hunger like it's this temporary emergency. Like people are only hungry for a bit until until they're not anymore. It's like, you know, for people that are that experience hunger as children, if you are under the age of five and you experience hunger, you have a 75% more chance of experiencing it as an adult, right? So like this, this doesn't just go away. 
you know, like one in seven people do not have enough food to eat in the United States. This is not just like some temporary thing. And mm -hmm. I can say that with such passion because I actually experienced it. And, and I think hunger also, it's just really explaining it to people, like get anecdotal. When we say hunger, we say, I have to decide, do I pay rent or do I buy food for family, right? Like really need to sit down and explain that to people. I also feel like just because you might not be impacted by food insecurity doesn't mean you're not impacted by food insecurity. Do you know what I mean? Because there are so, like you might not experience actual hunger, right? Actually, but you might experience the impact of that in one way or another. At the end of the day, these are systematic and systemic issues that require incredible shifts and not just agriculture and not just how we go about food, right? Not just like, do you get your food from a grocery store or do you get it from the farmer's market or do you actually live on a farm? Like, sure, those are issues, but it's also about distribution. It's also about education. It's also about housing. It's also about healthcare, right? There are so many things tied up into this. So yeah, you might not experience hunger in your life, but you have probably experienced A through Z other things that I mentioned, lack of transportation, lack of childcare, right? Lack of access to healthcare, right? Lack of education, et cetera. They're all connected systematically. That's incredible, especially, I mean, it's, it's, it's a new way to think about it, especially as you talk about hunger not being a temporary thing, that it being a trauma that doesn't go away, even if you grow up and, have all the food, right? Uh, become true. a chef, right? Yeah. It is still something that super informs who you are. And I wanna speak about that um, because you've talked about food as healing and you said coming home every day and cooking for yourself uh, or cooking yourself a meal is telling yourself you matter. Explain why you see cooking as a component of self-care. Oh my gosh. I mean, we are, we are humans. We have to eat. I think sometimes wellness and self-care and self-love can get very woo-woo, like really, really fast. It can become the tincture and the sauna and the, the supplements. And like, I, I, I don't know, I call it, those are like optimizers, right? Like, and self-optimization can matter too. I'm not saying that it doesn't, right? Like those things are valuable. However, when I think about self-care and wellness, I have these very simple pillars, right? Like food, air, water, movement, sunlight, community, purpose. Really simple. Those are like the basics when it comes to wellness for me. And food, I mean, think about what you're saying to yourself when you sit down and eat with yourself. You know, like I think sometimes we make it really complicated. And I think about what, what my ancestors and your ancestors and our ancestors did, right? I mean, they would gather food, they would grow food, they would hunt. And uh, they would sit and eat typically together. You know, I just can't think of anything more natural, you know, and more human to do than uh, make yourself a meal. I really can't. And pivoting slightly to something um, a little bit more fun. Um, you were recently at Paris Fashion Week, slaying with Dior. Um, and you, you talked about the fact that Food and fashion are sort of like these intertwined disciplines. Tell us where your fashion sense comes from and what your personal style is. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, my personal style, I'm like, I'm like a disco chic girl. Like I like, I'm like a disco skater kid. Like if I had to like describe my style, like I want to be comfortable, but I also want to be glam. So like I sort of kind of ride those extremes. 
Um, style has always been really important to me. And I just want to say style is really important to every single woman that I know that cooks. Um, and this sort of like idea of like, we all need to be in the kitchen wearing the same thing and the same poorly fitting chef coat. Ugh, it's just terrible. I feel like that, that this is, you know, when you think about being a chef, uh, a lot of times maybe a person might think that white man chef coat. Yes, that certain chef hat and no, no expression whatsoever because everything needs to go into the food. Very kind of um, almost kind of clinical in a way, you know, uh, I just want to blow that just completely out of the water. And that is why in counter space, I was like, you know what? I'm going to wear eyeshadow. I'm going to wear wild colors, right? Because that's who I am. You know, fashion absolutely inspires the way that I cook and um, how I feel about food. You know, it's an example, like uh, it's it's spring here in New York and it's like flowers, right? I made, how funny, I made flower shaped donuts today. <laughs> so how funny. That looks you know, so good. Isn't it cool? So I'm very much just inspired by what's around me. And I like to sort of like, it's spring. So flowers in my clothes, it's spring. So like, I'll make flower donuts, you know, I feel like. Food is just one of the many mediums for expression. You know, we're all lifetime learners. I don't think it's possible to have a conversation about culture without food. And I find it so interesting that um, when we talk about fashion or we talk about art, we talk about beauty, that often food is left out of the conversation. You know, why aren't we seeing more chefs at Fashion Weeks? Why aren't we seeing more chefs on red carpets? You know, I, I've often I've scratched my head about that. So I'm, I'm happy to kind of start that trend. Like I want to like, come on, Marcus Samuelson has incredible style. Lonnie Holiday, incredible style. Like I want to see these people at Fashion Week, you know? So we have learned food is news, food is political, food is healing, food is art, food is yeah. everything. That's obvious. Yeah. Um, yep. This will be um, one of our last questions. You entered the culinary world more than a decade ago. Good. Uh, tell me about the inclusion efforts you're seeing currently um, and what you want to see more of in the future. Okay, well, I wanna make it very clear. It has improved so much in just that time period. I've been, I've been cooking for 14 years um, and it's the only thing I've ever done. So I feel like it's the only thing that I for sure know that I can do is cook. And wow, I mean, it's night and day. I mean, you see women in the kitchen more than ever and they're not just in the kitchen, right? Because I want to make it clear, we've always been here, right? We've always been in the kitchen, but now we're finally being acknowledged for it, right? Um, especially as Black women or POCs. Um, I see, where I, where do I see that we could have some more improvement at just more of what we're already doing, right? I want to see more women getting James Beard Award. I want to see more Indigenous people getting funded for, funded, funding for restaurants, right? I want to see more uh, women, indigenous people, POCs, black people, when it actually comes to like restaurant ownership, restaurant groups, you know, I want to see more of that. I also want to see more black women in food TV, like period. I want to see indigenous people in food TV. I think that the, the, the social media food can seem really like, oh, it's kind of like, you know, there's so much of it, right? Uh, but not enough. Not enough. I want to see more women owning uh, alcohol companies. I want to see more black uh, people owning um, direct trade, having their like that look that goes into land acquisition, right? Like that goes into like give land back to the people who originally owned it so that they can have their own flower companies and they can make their own. They have their own mills and they can um, put their name on their food, right? Instead of selling through larger mechanized, 
you know, companies. Um, the future looks really bright, I think. I actually have like a different view than a lot of doom and gloom people out there. I am, I'm, I have direct sort of context, right? Because so much about counter spaces storytelling, I know people, specific people that are making a difference and that are not white and they're not men. So I know that it's happening. I just like maybe for it to happen a little faster. So the future is bright, but we need more, 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 more and more. faster. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, but that is a great note to leave it on. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us at Washington Post Live. Of course, this was lovely. Anytime. Next, we're going to shift gears a bit and we're going to turn our attention to the hearing on Capitol Hill with Sho Chu, the CEO of TikTok. Here to help us break it all down are Post reporters Camila DeChalis and Tatum Hunter. Camila and Tatum, welcome to you both. Camila, we're gonna start with you. Today was a rare show of bipartisanship on the Hill with many Democrats and Republicans bashing TikTok. What weapons does Congress have at its disposal to possibly rein in the platform? Camilla, I think we're having a problem with your yes, audio. Okay. Well, there we go. Here, just talking about how on Capitol Hill, several lawmakers, not just Republicans, but also Democrats, have been talking about introducing bills or already have introduced bills to ban TikTok. And a lot of what they're saying is that, hey, we are very concerned that the app poses a national security risk to the U.S. What you heard a lot of lawmakers asking the CEO today was just what measures he has and policies he has in place to really protect uh, data from U.S. citizens and U.S. users in the country. And you saw the CEO kind of pivot and say that what TikTok is experiencing or the lack of policies or the policies that are not just implemented just yet is a problem not just with TikTok, but with other social media companies based in the U.S. like Instagram or Facebook, that they're also having trouble trying to secure data privacy for the U.S. based in the U.S. And so this has been a really interesting conversation to have. This is the first time lawmakers have actually had a chance to ask questions to the CEO of TikTok because this has been an ongoing conversation about whether TikTok should be banned um, indefinitely that has been going on for the past several months. And a quick follow-up to that, Camilla. As you said, there was a lot of hostility in the committee room as members of Congress questioned CEO Sho Chu. How did he hold up? Well, you saw him really trying to just not talk about issues that were going on with his company, but really talk about kind of almost deflecting or shifting the conversation just to talk about how these are problems existing just with current social media applications in the current day. A lot of lawmakers just brought up the concerns for the younger generation and brought up examples of where they felt like there was harm towards um, teens or younger adults that were using the application and asking him whether he was aware of some of the content that would be considered nefarious or harmful for users on the app. And he just simply said, you know, they're trying to 
come up with more solutions to really target when people are using the app for nefarious means. But, you know, I think it's just, he really just try to highlight that this is just not only going on with TikTok, but with other social media companies in the U.S. He brought up Facebook and how they're also struggling to just secure uh, data privacy for its users. So this is just not a problem just for the app or the ownership of the fact that the Chinese you know, that this is based um, with ByteDance, which is a Chinese-owned company, but that these pro experiences, these problems that they're experiencing is really common among other social media platforms. And so this is really kind of interesting because you see lawmakers, not just Democrats, but also Republicans almost unify on this effort. And you can see that they're very frustrated with just big tech and problems around data privacy. They brought up how this is now the 32nd hearing that they've had regarding big tech and data privacy issues. And so you saw them a lot of vent their frustrations just with that. They're not really getting the answers that they want about how big this problem is and just what solutions TikTok and other companies are trying to put forth to try to address it. And Tatum, I want to bring you in here. Uh, back things up a bit. And what do we know about TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, and their data practices? So ByteDance is uh, based in Beijing, and a lot of the concern stems from um, a, you know, this belief that uh, ByteDance's relationship with the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, um, is going to be too close and that those uh, government officials would have access to the personal data of U.S. citizens, that they would have influence over TikTok's algorithm to be able to, for example, plant propaganda, um, or that there would be some nefarious goal to plant just kind of uh, mind-numbing or brain-rotting content in Americans' for you pages. Uh, there's so far been no evidence that ByteDance shares data with the Chinese government, um, but it's you know it's tough to prove a negative. So there's a lot of places along that flow of data um, that either individual employees or the company um, you know could share that data. And the, the concern is that there, it's really, really tough to keep an eye on because of the scale of TikTok's data collection. And as Camilla pointed out, um, this isn't you know, that type of large scale data collection that Congress people today described as surveillance is something that Americans are really familiar with because of our relationships with Meta, Google, and other US-based tech giants. And Tatum, how are tech companies in Silicon Valley in general responding to what was said or revealed during today's hearing? Uh, I haven't got to connect with them to ask or to see what their responses have been, but I can certainly imagine that all of this talk about a comprehensive privacy law um, guarding Americans' data um, from collection and you know use for targeted advertising or limited limiting that data collection is not welcome uh, would not be a welcome development uh, for Google, Meta, or other companies that use that model to make money. Um, they've lobbied against it, and I think that TikTok becoming a flashpoint is both good because it's like okay, better them than us, but also bad because if, pri if comprehensive privacy legislation gets pushed through, that would, for example, affect these companies' ability to target advertisements to minors. And on the subject of advertising, Camilla, um, so today under tough questioning, the TikTok CEO um, would not say that TikTok would not sell its data to other companies or stop targeting ads um, to those under 17. How badly did that hurt TikTok's case? 
Well, this was something that wasn't surprising, just given that the Biden administration came out last week saying that they would consider implementing a nationwide ban if they did not sell to a U.S.-based company. And they kind of went already on the defensive saying that they were not interested in doing that. And that was not in their imperative, that they were really going to try to make a stronger case about why they do not pose a national security risk and really laying out what measures and policies they have in place. You saw a lot of the questioning of lawmakers is them trying to build that connection of how much, you know, there was a question they were asked about how much the CEO of TikTok talks to the CEO of ByteDance and how if they have regular um, communication in which he replied yes. And so they're really trying to understand exactly how forthcoming they are with giving over data in which he assured that, you know, he was not going to be selling, he doesn't sell at this current moment, any um, data to any data brokers. And so this is something that lawmakers have really gone into a little bit more in depth, asking a lot of questions around revenue, advertisement, how much money they make, but because they are a private company, they do not have to answer those questions. And so this when we talk about him, whether defending if it's being effective or not on Capitol Hill, uh, you can see a lot of the lawmakers' expressions, and especially their questioning after more than two hours worth of this hearing, that they still are not satisfied with some of the answers that they're hearing, and they want more policies and measures in place. But to Tatum's point about whether there's scrutiny on TikTok more after this hearing or placed on other social media companies, this is something that not only are they going to be galvanizing and talking more about TikTok and whether it is safe for users in the U.S. to keep using, now there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on other U.S.-based social media companies. And if they are also, you know, giving data away and not having a lot of privacy measures when it comes in place on protecting user data. And Tatum, so we've talked about this in this conversation, but for those who don't know, TikTok is predominantly used by younger people. Um, do you think today's hearing did anything to move the needle on how the platform might be using their data, as we've talked about in this conversation? And do you think people will be more skeptical about using TikTok as a result of the hearing? I think that um, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are in some ways using the issue of TikTok to display um, you know, their skepticism of China, their skepticism of big tech, but a lot of the details have got really fuzzy. Uh, as Camilla just referenced, uh, TikTok doesn't sell data, it shares data um, uh, internally to better target ads, and it collects an amount of data and the types of data that some users might find invasive. So I, I do think that, um, that to the extent that that's made clear to listeners, their skepticism of TikTok would be higher after today. I also, you know, notice a lot of members of Congress not giving to uh, the opportunity to respond to their questions. And uh, and it seems like today was a real um, lose-lose situation for him where, you know, he cannot, he cannot make the promises that they're asking um, or would not, or would not unless, you know, forced to by U.S. law. And Camilla, you're going to have the last thought here. Do you think it's likely that the Biden administration will ban TikTok? I think it's very telling just given in the past that Biden has actively worked with content creators on this platform to effectively communicate his messaging around a lot of policies and bills that he's enacted or even executive orders. The fact that even in the past, he's used this at his own benefit and now has come for the first time ever to say 
hey, look, we are seriously consider opposing a nationwide ban on this app. This is how much, this is how seriously we consider this to be a national security threat. I think that's very telling. And the fact that you have dozens of lawmakers on Capitol Hill saying that they're willing to support legislation if it goes to the House floor to make sure that happens. So I think, you know, if you asked me six months ago, I would have said, okay, it's just only a small group of lawmakers that are pushing for this. But now that you have the Biden administration support behind a nationwide ban, if it does not sell, if TikTok does not sell to a U.S.-based company, that is very telling. So whether this is going to be likely to happen or not, I think that still has yet to be said. During the hearing, a lot of lawmakers asked for information and data that the CEO just did not readily have it on hand. And so he essentially said that, give him some time and he will get back to them. So I think depending on how those conversations go after the hearing will be very telling. And so I think this is just the first among several conversations they are seriously going to have, whether when it comes to whether they will ban the app or not, or really push forward with introducing legislation to actually get that done. We're going to have to leave it there. Camilla Tatum, thank you so much for joining me on Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.